0: Hello and welcome to talking general practice the podcast from gp online i'm emma Bauer, the editor of gp online today on the podcast i'm joined by our news editor nick bostock and our senior reporter ellie philpotts to talk about the latest news affecting primary care coming up we're talking about ongoing gp contract negotiations in england for next year we're looking at the government's record on the nhs including how it's handling the care backlog and discussing gp workforce statistics after they passed a pretty grim milestone last month We're also talking about a rise in partnership and PCN disputes and what might be behind this trend, as well as the latest on this month's junior doctor strikes. Finally, our good news story this week is about a local patient campaign that's forced an integrated care board to U-turn on its plans for a large provider to take over a small practice in Lancashire. First up, let's look at what's going on with the GP contract in England. We're less than a month away now from when any updates to the contract for 2023-24 would come into effect But at the time of recording, details of what all this could mean for practices have not been forthcoming. We spoke about this on the last news podcast, but if you remember, earlier in February, the BMA rejected proposed changes to the GP contract. The BMA said the offer ignored pressure on practices and offered no additional investment to support practices facing sharply increased costs from rising energy bills and staff wages. Nick, you've been speaking to GPs about a potential threat to funding for general practice after the BMA rejected the contract offer. What have they said?
1: I've spoken to some senior GPs to try to find out a bit more about talks on the contract deal that the BMA's GP committee rejected last month. One significant point that came up was a concern that the government could seek to claw back funding from general practice. From what I'm told, the government was effectively threatening to do this unless the BMA accepted the contract package that was on the table. And given the professions leaders emphatically rejected that contract offer, that clawback threat is hanging in the air. Neither the BMA nor the government has commented on this claim, because contract talks are still ongoing, but it's something I've heard from more than one GP source. To explain a bit of background, the the five-year GP contract deal that started from 2019 contains something called a balancing mechanism. And basically it means that if there's an unexpectedly large increase in either inflation or in GP Partners' real terms earnings, the government can move money between the two largest funding streams for general practice to balance that out. So money can be moved between GP Practices' core funding, the global sum payments they receive on the one hand, and the Additional Roles Reimbursement Scheme, the ARRS, on the other hand. That's the multi-billion pound scheme set up as part of the five-year contract deal to bring in 26,000 staff, such as physios, pharmacists and others to support primary care. Given inflation is sky high at the moment, you might think that this was a time when the government could consider moving money from the ARRS, which has routinely underspent over recent years, into practices core funding to offer general practice more support at a time when pressure on GPs is unprecedented. But the suggestion is that the government could look instead to claw money back from general practice on the basis that GP Partners' profits were higher than intended in the first year of the COVID pandemic. Data on GP earnings for 2020-21, which is the most recent set of figures available, shows that GP Partners' earnings rose by more than 16% in cash terms. It's around 10% in real terms compared with the previous year. And that's obviously an increase far above the level envisaged in the five-year contract, although, of course, the contract equally didn't envisage a pandemic. What I've been told is that the government offered to scrap the balancing mechanism, effectively ruling out any clawback of that higher-than-expected GP income if the BMA accepted its contract offer. So, as I said, given the BMA didn't accept the deal, which it said was insulting, Mm -hmm. the clawback threat remains. And it's worth noting that about three weeks after the BMA rejected the contract offer, the government submitted evidence to the doctors and dentists review body, which advises on pay, and that evidence pointed out the data on higher than expected partner income. There's no guarantee any clawback will happen, of course, and and there are massive arguments against it. Accountants have pointed out that the increase in profits in 2021 was driven by two key factors. It's extra income generated by the COVID vaccination campaign, which was largely led by general practice on the one hand. And on the other hand, the fact that numbers of GP partners have been falling and practices have been struggling to recruit So partners took on more work to deliver a vital vaccination campaign during the pandemic while the workforce was going down and their earnings went up as a result. And obviously a clawback would be such a damaging blow to GP morale at a time when the government's desperate to retain GPs in the workforce that it seems unthinkable it would go ahead with this. But nonetheless, well-connected GPs are saying that is exactly what the government suggested it could do in the course of talks on next year's contract.
0: The government has a track record of playing hardball with GPs, despite the pressure that they're currently facing. Most recently, it imposed a contract deal on the profession last year. Are there signs that that could happen again this coming year?
1: Another imposed contract does seem a strong possibility. One senior GP I spoke to said they believe that is the way things will go this year again. And they haven't seen anything to convince them that a deal is likely to be struck. Clearly, the the contract package that was rejected... And the way it was rejected with the BMA calling it insulting and warning that it risks accelerating the death of general practice showed just how far apart the profession and the government are. So if there is to be a deal, there's a lot of ground to make up between the two sides.
0: There were some signs in the last couple of weeks that the government could be open to some changes that the BMA wants, mainly around the COAF, the Investment and Impact Fund, which is the performance-related pay for primary care networks, and also the ARRS, which you mentioned earlier. What do we know about that?
1: Talks are ongoing on the contracts we mentioned earlier. Although you know, obviously that deal was rejected, they've continued talking. And GPs from the BMA met a health minister, Neil O'Brien, in mid-February. We talked on the last podcast about some of the points of contention between the BMA and the government. There was an update from the BMA that suggested the government had said uh, it would consider changes to funding streams such as the COAF, the ARS and the Investment and Impact Fund for primary care networks those could be areas where there's some more common ground. The BMA update said that the health minister had acknowledged how hard GPs are working at the moment and had talked about unnecessary bureaucracy and changes that could be made to the coif. And the BMA also suggested that the government could agree to speed up reform of these funding frameworks, which will be worth up to £2.5 billion a year to general practice in the coming financial year. One of the reasons why reducing bureaucracy and workload involved in these pay for performance frameworks is particularly critical for general practice at the moment, is that the intense pressure on practices means many of them may struggle to hit the targets and risk missing out on huge chunks of that income over the coming years. And we know there's support from right at the top of government for reforming or even scrapping target frameworks like the COAF. Chancellor Jeremy Hunt backed getting rid of the QOF only last year when he was chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee.
0: Yeah, I'm sure we've mentioned on the podcast before, um, you you mentioned the DDRB's recommendations earlier. So GP funding won't be covered by any recommendations they make this year because GPs are subject to that five-year pay contracts that comes to an end in 2024 and there are fixed pay increases for each year of the deal. Um, The government did submit evidence on recommendations for salary GPs um, and that suggests there's probably little chance of any increase in funding for the GP contract from April, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, so the government's evidence to the DDRB said that any recommendations on salary GP pay should be informed by affordability and the fixed contract resources available to practices under the five-year GP contract. So that suggests, as you mentioned, that the government is very much operating on the basis that the five-year contract agreed in 2019 is not going to be ripped up and that the fixed funding uplift for 2023-24 is not going to change. It's worth remembering at this point that last year the DDRB recommended an increase for salary GPs that was higher than the government wanted, and the government accepted that increase. But what it didn't do was offer GP practices any extra funding to cover the cost of that pay increase, which left a hole worth tens of thousands of pounds in practices' budgets.
0: This week, GP Online reported on a rise in disputes within GP partnerships and at primary care network level. Ellie, this was your story. What's going on here?
2: Thanks Emma. Yeah, so essentially it seems there's been quite a big rise in disputes across the country and this is concerning both partners and entire PCNs. So I've been speaking to quite a number of contacts who are seeing this in practice. So that's from LMCs to a GP turned mediator and a solicitor to a medical accountant. So this year actually marks four years since PCNs were first set up and so it's actually around now that we're really seeing certain issues with them come into the fore.
0: Yeah, I suppose in some ways that's perhaps not surprising, is it? Because like you say, it's four years, two of those were very much dealing with the pandemic. So it's perhaps not surprising now it's business as usual that we're starting to see problems arising. So what sort of issues are causing problems for networks?
2: So, for PCNs, we're really seeing some tensions arising from the additional roles reimbursement scheme. So, as Nick has touched on previously, this is an NHS England plan to support PCNs by funding a further 26,000 roles. So, this ranges from pharmacists to physios, and it's all part of a big plan to form multidisciplinary teams. And then, other common factors, as GP mediator Dr. Claire Sieber puts it, kind of include the division of income, the ability to achieve investment impact fund targets so if one practice isn't doing so well that has an impact sometimes it's just as simple as clashing personalities of clinical directors governance and so on so one lmc i spoke to cited some challenges with gps have been hand to shoulder for quite some time now funding not matching demand the unaddressed workforce crisis and PCNs actually turning out to add more pressure onto gps not less as I originally thought also came up So one LMC leader said that rather than supporting general practice with a growing workload, PCM's actually been used to add additional activity and more bureaucracy to general practice. And obviously, this creates all manner of problems. I also spoke to a solicitor who stresses that practices essentially being kind of flung together also tends to be a recipe for disaster. And ICB's not letting these practices, you know, go their separate ways is when things tend to get particularly troublesome. Finally, there are some issues that aren't exclusive to primary care. Increased inflation, in this case, will drive at practice finances, and tensions can boil over as a result of that.
0: And what are these people sort of saying about the reasons behind the rising disputes within partnerships? Is it a lot to do with the the workforce pressures that, and the workload pressures that practices are under? Quite a few
2: themes kind of reoccurred, and, and those ones were commonly cited. The ongoing GP crisis was a major one, and specifically, like you say, you know, workload increasing while the workforce decreases is a kind of lose lose situation. And we've also seen a lot of change following the COVID pandemic, with partners feeling the need to rethink their work life balance and, and not want to spend as much time within all of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously these disputes must be really stressful and and time-consuming for everyone involved.
2: Yeah, definitely. Often they need mediators and lawyers to get involved, which has an expense attached as well as a lot of time. And there's already a huge time pressure for practices. Um, And a lot of the problems that are causing this rise in disputes aren't going anywhere. So we could see even more PCNs and partnerships coming across problems in the future. In particular, as ICBs look to perhaps Devolve more services to PCNs and expect more from
0: them in the coming months and years. I think that's one to keep an eye on for sure. Moving on, so how do we think the government is handling the NHS at the minute? We'll be coming on to talk about NHS staff strikes later in the podcast, but aside from the workforce, the other major problem the government has to contend with is the huge backlog of care and growing NHS waiting lists. Nick, a pretty damning report about how the government has handled this particular issue was published by the House of Commons Public Accounts Committee this week. What did that have to say?
1: The report says that the government's three-year NHS recovery plan has fallen short within its first year. It says that cancer waiting times are at their worst recorded level and a target for reducing elective care waits over two years was missed last year. Meanwhile, the elective care waiting list remains at a record level, over 7 million, and MPs say that the government recovery target on the waiting list is unachievable. The committee's chair said that the NHS was in full-blown crisis and that all the key metrics are moving in the wrong direction. Uh, It's a really stark warning about the state of the NHS, and it suggests that improvement is just not happening as fast as the government had promised. From GP's point of view, this means that pressure on general practice is likely to remain high for the foreseeable future too. The hospital backlog heaps extra pressure on practices because patients waiting a long time for treatment have to be managed in primary care while they wait, which means more appointments, prescriptions and support ultimately.
0: This particular report comes fairly quickly on the heels of another damning assessment of the government's handling of the NHS last week, this time from members of the public. That was based on polling by Ipsos and the think tank, the Health Foundation.
1: What did they find? The polling shows that public support for the government's handling of the NHS is at its lowest point in two decades. One in 10 people UK-wide, and it's just 8% in England, believe the government has the right policies for the health service. And that's down from a peak of 37% in 2008 and 2009, which obviously just before the coalition government came in after the 2010 general election. Interestingly, given what we've just been discussing about government not appearing to want to put more money into the GP contract, 82% of respondents to the Ipsos and Health Foundation poll said more funding was needed for the NHS. And the polling also found a lot of support for reducing pressure on NHS staff and expanding the workforce, which suggests that despite some of the negative headlines, there, there is public understanding and support for NHS staff.
0: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the workforce there, but it's clear the government really doesn't have a handle on problems around recruitment and retention of staff, you know, as GPs will only know too well from what's going on within the profession. We talk about the GP workforce statistics a lot on the podcast, but those figures passed what was described as a grim milestone last
1: week, didn't they? Yeah. So the the latest GP workforce figures show that in January this year, there were 27,287 fully qualified full-time equivalent GPs in England and that's more than 2,000 fewer than there were in September 2015. So, And that's when comparable workforce figures go back to. Uh, And that that date is also notable because it was the baseline from which Jeremy Hunt, now the Chancellor and at that time the Health and Social Care Secretary, promised to increase the GP workforce by 5,000. So not only was his target to deliver that increase by 2020 not met, effectively the NHS is now more than 7,000 full-time equivalent GPs below the level it should be at. So as the BMA said, that slump in the workforce really is a grim milestone for general practice. Emma, one of the other big stories of the past two weeks is the results of the junior doctor ballot on industrial action. So what's happening there?
0: So last week, the results of the BMA's junior doctor's ballot were announced. Uh, Remember, this is a ballot just of the BMA's junior doctor members in England. Nearly 37,000 junior doctors took part in the ballot, which was a turnout of over 77% and 98% of those doctors voted in favour of strike action. The BMA's Junior Doctors' Committee said the vote showed the strength of feeling among junior doctors. They said their members were frustrated, in despair and angry. Just to remind everyone, the BMA is pushing for full pay restoration. So junior doctors have experienced a 26% real terms pay cut since 2008. And as we've talked about on the podcast before, this means that many junior doctors are facing all sorts of difficult financial pressures So after the results of the ballot were made known, members of the Junior Doctors' Committee met with officials at the Department of Health and Social Care, but those talks proved fruitless. So following that meeting, the BMA confirmed that junior doctors, including those working in emergency care, will stage a three-day walkout, which will start at 7am on Monday the 13th of March. Members of the Junior Doctors Committee eventually met with Health and Social Care Secretary Steve Barclay today, which is Thursday. Those talks did not go well. Apparently, Steve Barclay admitted that he has not got the authority or the green light from Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to negotiate with them. The BMA stressed again that it's within the government's gift to avert the strike, but serious negotiations need to get underway for that to happen. So as things stand, at the time of recording, the three-day strike on the 13th is set to go ahead. So this is a really significant step. Some listeners will remember that junior doctors went on strike in, in 2016 in protest about changes to their contract, but those strikes were either 24 or 48 hours. So 72 hours, a full three days, is a real first. And this is actually longer than any of the nurse strikes we've seen so far this year. You know, we should be under no illusion the strike will have kind of quite a big impact on the NHS, some of which will undoubtedly be felt in general practice. After the strike was announced, the chief executive of the NHS Confederation, which represents um, NHS trusts and NHS organisations, Said the strike would have a major impact on the services patients will be able to access. He said it was going to be a very long 72 hours. Uh, he also pointed out that when junior doctors went on strike in 2016, almost 300,000 outpatient appointments were cancelled. You know, and I had a look at those statistics, and and that figure, that 300,000, equates to twice as many appointments being cancelled as I would have been expected in that period. And that would have been the results of both junior doctors not being there, not being at work, but also from consultant colleagues having to be diverted to cover emergency care, which will undoubtedly need to happen during this upcoming strike. You know, those figures covered four strikes, two 24-hour strikes, two 48-hour strikes, and only one of those 48-hour strikes involved the withdrawal of emergency cover. So I think, you know, whichever way you look at it, there's going to be an impact on patient care. And certainly, you know, the NHS Confederation is very concerned that it will affect the work going on to tackle the backlog of appointments and waiting lists at the moment. Okay, and and what do we know about
1: what all this means for GP trainees?
0: Well, obviously, they will be going on strike as well if if they choose to do so. Um, Obviously, that will have an impact on training practices in terms of the number of appointments they will have available over those three days Um, in terms of how Strike action works for GP trainees. I spoke to the BMA GP trainee committee chair, Dr. David Smith, a few weeks ago on the podcast, you which know, is well worth a listen if if people haven't heard. Where we were speaking while the ballot was going on, but in that, you know, he explained that when doctors strike, they can only join a picket line at their actual place of work. So I think it's it's unlikely that we're going to see GP trainees standing on picket lines of just themselves outside their practice. But what they probably will do is join an organised protest outside the gates of a specific hospitals or places of work. So these protests would be taking place on public land outside the hospital. Something else to point out, Dr Smith has written a piece for us on the website this week about why thousands of GP trainees will be out on strike and why doctors in other parts of the profession should support their junior doctor colleagues, which is is well worth looking at as well.
1: There have been some positive signs from across the border in Wales, though, haven't there?
0: Yes. Um, Well, that's just happened this week. So earlier in February, the Welsh Government offered all the unions in Wales an enhanced pay offer for this financial year. So for 2022-23, the year we're in now, which would see all staff on Agenda for Change, as well as junior doctors and hospital doctors, awarded an additional 3% on top of what they already received earlier this year, backdated to April 2022. you know, At the time, the Welsh government said that was the best it could possibly offer. Um, just to be clear, that offer didn't apply to GP partners and practice funding. Anyway, this week, the government announced that the unions had collectively narrowly agreed to accept the deal, but I think it was a, a very narrow decision and certainly not all of the unions are on board with this. RCN, Royal College of Nursing members in Wales, actually rejected it And there was also actually a division within the BMA itself over the offer. The Welsh Junior Doctors' Committee rejected the deal. But as a whole, BMA Wales have backed it based on votes cast from other committees, including consultants and SAS doctors. What is significant is as part of this deal, the Welsh government has said it is committed to the idea of pay restoration in principle and committed to working with unions to put together practical plans about how they can meet that aim. And both the Junior Doctors' Committee and BMA Wales as a whole have been really, really positive about that. Apparently, talks are now underway about the pay deal for these groups of doctors for next year. And the BMA was also very clear that any discussions around pay restoration in Wales would also need to include GPs. I think that in England, the BMA will be looking for some sort of similar commitment around pay restoration from the government as well.
1: What's going on with uh, other strikes in England?
0: Yeah, well, some interesting developments there as well. So last week, uh, the Royal College of Nurses called off its two-day strike that was due to go ahead this week um, from the 1st to the 3rd of March after the government agreed to enter into intensive negotiations with the union. That's the term they use. And I think this is what the BMA really wants to see from the government as well. They want some sort of commitment to enter into serious negotiations on junior doctor pay, which has obviously not been forthcoming. Anyway, the strike the RCN called off was due to include emergency and intensive care nurses for the first time. So it would have been the biggest strike that they had undertaken to date as we record this, we understand that that invitation has been extended to include other unions that are currently striking. And those unions are in the process of deciding what to do. In particular, I think those unions will want to know what's already been discussed by the RCN and the government as part of their decision making process. It's not really clear yet whether this means the strikes planned by Unison and the GMB that are scheduled to go ahead next week and whether they will or not. But I suppose, you know, this is a potentially positive step forwards. We've just got time for our good news story and this week it comes from Lancashire where Lancashire and South Cumbria Integrated Care Board has reversed plans for a large provider to take over a small practice after patients demanded to keep their local GP. Ellie can you tell us a bit more about this?
2: So some patients in Chorley were really disappointed recently when their GP at Wivenell Health Centre lost her bid to keep the contract. It was a private provider that won it But word soon spread around the community, and before long, their petition to save their practice was rapidly gaining pace. The Save with Now Health Centre team campaigned for their cause over social media, in person, and by lobbying their MP, who is also Speaker of the House, Sir Lindsay Hoyle. And they were thrilled to have become successful last week when their ICB decided to, in its own words, abandon its current procurement process. The ICB actually further apologised to patients, promising further engagement with them next time. So the good news for now is that the existing partner, Dr Anne Robinson, has been awarded a contract that means she'll be staying in place for a further 18 months. So for the foreseeable future, the patients
0: of Withnell Health
2: Centre do get to keep the GP they're used to.
0: Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening and thanks to Nick and Ellie. I'm back next week, but in the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the news affecting primary care and access lots of other resources and information on our website at gponline.com.